welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, why not check out our website, birminghamvineyard.com. And it's part of our series called Insights or Finding Hidden Gems in the Bible. So those bits of the Bible you might not have read at all or maybe not very much and then seeing what God has to say to us through them. So we've looked at Nahum, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Haggai and today's Malachi. I think this is actually quite an exciting book because of where it sits in the Bible. It acts almost like a bit of a hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it summarizes the story of God's people and God's relationship with them up to this point, And then it starts looking forward. And we know, being New Testament people, we know what's just around the corner. They don't. There's actually this gap between Malachi and the New Testament of about 400 years. So it doesn't feel like a big gap, but actually it's there in your Bible. So context. Who's Malachi then? Well, It would be nice if we knew who Malachi was. His name just means messenger. So we don't actually know who this man or woman might have been. But you can see from this, this is the line of the the major and minor prophets. So Malachi is right at the far end there. All this has come before. So once the chronology in your Bible actually works, the last book in the Old Testament actually was the last one written. And the context he's writing to is the Jews have been in exile in Babylon. And they've come back about 100 years before Malachi's writing. So they've had a bit of time back in Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. They've rebuilt the walls. And at that moment, around the book of Ezra, there was this big sense of expectation and hope that God was finally going to sort everything out. The Messiah was going to come. Jerusalem was going to be this wonderful city. And they weren't going to be under the thumb of any of these bigger pressing empires anymore. And it hadn't happened. So Malachi's written into this context of really disillusionment and disappointment because they feel like really God has let them down. All these wonderful promises haven't happened yet. And so as a result, they can't really be bothered anymore. Nothing's really changed around them, but actually exile hasn't really changed them either. Nothing's really changed. The structure of Malachi is really interesting. It's written like a series of um, conversations or dialogues between God and Israel. I don't know if you know the kids' rhyme, who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? Any, any flickers? Okay, Mike's smiling at me. There we go. Mike knows who stole the cookie. He goes, who stole the cookie from the cookie jar? And I go, Mike stole the cookie from the cookie jar. And Mike goes, who, me? And I go, yes, you. Mike goes, not me. I go, then who? And this is the story of Malachi, this structure of God saying to the Israelites, this is what you're doing. It's awful. And the Israelites go, who, us? All innocents. And God says, yes, you. There's a big problem. So we're going to look at Malachi's summary of the problem of what's going on in Israel at the moment. And then a couple of reminders about who God is. And then some promises that God is making about what's coming in the future. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, you are a living God, and the words that we read in Scripture speak to us today. They're not just history. Would you open our hearts and our minds to hear you this morning and give us grace to respond to you as well? Amen. So the problem. The problem is that at root level, God's people are unfaithful. You'll see the word covenant a lot in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New And um, I think sometimes when we hear the word covenant, we think of like a contract. You do this, I'll do that, 
tit for tat, a bit like um, your job contract, making sure that your rights are protected and you're not taken advantage of. Actually, covenant is bigger than that. It's more like a set of marriage promises, a, a sense of commitment to the other person for their sake, not to protect you. So this is the covenant that God has made with his people um, for their good and their benefit and to protect them and to be their God. But actually, they've broken it in so many ways. If you read the story of the Old Testament, it's like a long disobedience in the same direction. It's, it's this constant sense of, actually, we don't care about you. We're going to walk away. God sends a prophet to bring them back. They come back and they do it again and this over and over thing. And what we see in Malachi, he's talking very clearly about what this has played out as, what it's looked like. So if we look at chapter 1, um, verses 8 and 10, God says to the Israelites, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so you would not light useless fires on my altar. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Ouch. Blunt. What they're doing is seeing how much they can get away with, how little they can actually give. Instead of bringing the best, they're bringing the lamb that's a bit mangy or a bit stinky or the one that can't stop throwing up in the corner. It's, it's not an offering of worship to God. It's, you can have this one because I don't really care about that. And the priests are letting them get away with it. It's, it's not really just what they're doing. It's what's underneath it that's the problem. Malachi also talks about the fact that there's a lot of divorce and idolatry going on. The Jewish men are divorcing their wives and they're going off to marry a woman of another nation. And God's saying that itself is bad enough. You're being unfaithful to your wife and you've promised to her, but actually you're, you're leaving me behind as well because you're going after other gods, the gods of this new wife. And they're also, they've got a massive problem with injustice. So in Malachi, the the Jews um, are simultaneously on one hand saying, evil's not really that bad. These things that are going on, they're okay, really. So they're excusing it on one hand. And then on the other side, they're going, God, life is terrible. What are you doing about all this injustice? You clearly don't care. So they've got this double standard going on with injustice. And I think with that list of things that are going on, the thing that comes through to me is an inconvenient truth that God is not just... Um, he doesn't just care about what we do, but he cares about the heart and the attitudes that run underneath it. And I think that's inconvenient because it's much easier to look like you're doing the right thing than for it to be right in here. Um, I was pondering when I was writing this talk about you know, recent examples in my life of how this could have been the case and, um, and found one from the previous day, which was disheartening. Um, but it was a Saturday morning, I was thinking, when have I done this? And I thought, oh, yeah, yesterday afternoon. So Friday afternoon, I don't know how you feel, can be a bit like a race for the weekend, can't it? Just hang on in there, it's going to be Saturday soon, it's going to be okay. And in the surgery where I work, it's normally the moment at Friday lunchtime where I have five minutes to nip round to Sainsbury's because junk food is clearly the answer to get you through Friday afternoon. That's not quite the case. But it, it sometimes gives people a lift, doesn't it? So I, I put some snacks out in the kitchen and this little thought came into my head, you know what, you could send a message around to everyone to tell them there's food in the kitchen and enjoy yourselves, it's Friday afternoon. And that sounded really nice and really generous, but actually what was going on inside was, and then they'll know it was you. 
everyone goes into the kitchen for a cuppa, they would have found them anyway. But actually, the message meant that they knew I was the kind and generous one. And then I got lots of lovely compliments and thank yous. And I sent the message. And that was the heart stuff behind it for me was, that wasn't really so godly, was it? And that kind of stuff is much harder to fix than doing the nice thing on the outside. The problem with Israel is actually the bigger one underneath all of this stuff that's going wrong is that they don't really believe that God loves them. If you go right back to the the second verse of the whole book, the first thing God says to them is, I have loved you. And Israel's reply, how have you loved us? Yeah, right, whatever. We don't think that's true. This comes at the end of this massive story of the Old Testament of God repeatedly saving them and rescuing them and giving them purpose and identity. They don't get it. They can't see it. And so all of those covenant commitments just felt like a massive obligation. And as a result, it turned into, how much can I get away with? I wonder how deep that knowledge goes in you. It's easy to say, God loves me. It's not always that easy to let it go from here to here. And generally we know, because it plays out in the attitudes of our hearts towards God, that the reality hasn't really sunk in that we are deeply and fiercely loved by this amazing God. Sometimes our faith can become a bit of a formality. We are almost really angling towards what's the minimum I can give of my time or my money or myself that God will be happy with? What's okay? What's good enough? But actually Malachi gives us this invitation to live and give ourselves wholeheartedly, not holding things back because we know that we're loved by God. So the problem, people are unfaithful. The reminder is that God is faithful. And God is faithful firstly to his character. So the things that God wrote into the covenant with the Israelites way back when, generations before with their ancestors of the importance of purity and faithfulness and justice and integrity, God's character hasn't changed. And so the bad news for Israel is that God's covenant hasn't changed either. Those things still matter just as much in their day as it did for their ancestors. And it's the same for us. God doesn't change with his character. He still loves those things. But God is also faithful to his people. So I'm going to read the start of chapter 3, verse 6. It says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, Israel, and I'm expecting are really for the high jump. You know, you've messed up, you've blown it. I can't forgive this because my character hasn't changed. I still hate these things. But no, that's not what he says. He says, I, the little, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and you haven't kept them. Return to me and I will return to you. And I hear echoes of other places in the Bible where we hear about God's love. Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love. 1 John 4, we love because God first loved us. His response to us isn't what we'd always expect. In these verses, we just see the beautiful tension of a God who can't tolerate sin, evil, injustice, oppression, but he also loves us more than we will ever know. And how do those two fit together? Actually, we have the beauty of hindsight 
We're New Testament people. And we can see, standing in the book of Malachi, we're looking this way into the New Testament and we see the cross approaching. We see Jesus. Because on the cross is where God's justice and hatred for sin and his mercy and love for people meet. And they're both satisfied. I remember the first moment, the reality of what the, what the cross meant really hit home for me. I was probably 14 or 15. I'd become a Christian about nine months before. And at that moment um, of becoming a Christian, it was about, gosh, there's this massive hole in my life. I need something to fill it. It's a God-shaped hole kind of thing. God is filling that hole. He is completing my life. But actually, nine months later, I was at a youth event and somebody was singing um, the Matt Redmond song called Once Again. Once again, I look upon the cross where you died. I'm humbled by your mercy and I'm broken inside. And it was overwhelming. It was that sense of, oh, shoot, I'm a real mess. I actually really need forgiveness. It was the first moment that connected that sense of conviction, I guess we call it, by the Holy Spirit. And it's where I went, oh, this is where it happens. The cross is where it happens, where actually God's um, forgiveness for me becomes real and his love is poured out. And it was just the most amazing realization. It's never left me that I needed forgiveness, but also I was loved and I was forgiven. And those few verses end with this sentence from God, return to me and I will return to you. And that's where I feel like we meet the heart of God in this passage. Return to me. It's the heart cry of the father. It's that story of the prodigal son and the father waiting on the road for his son who'd messed up to return and he runs and he embraces him. And that is the heart cry of the father. So we think as a God of the Old Testament, sometimes very differently from the God of the New but we can see all the way through the Old Testament that this is a God who deeply cares for his people. And there's, a, there's an invitation this morning from God to return again, to be confident God's arms are open to us. Or, you know, not to return, to come for the first time. You've never run towards God. You've never made a step towards him. But he's saying, come, I will come to you if you come to me. So we have the, the problem of unfaithfulness, the reminder that God is faithful. And then finally, the promise, the promise of new hearts and a new world. What is God going to do about all of this? I'm going to read a few verses from the start of chapter three and a couple from the start of chapter four as well. God says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you're seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He'll purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day is coming that will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Tricky language. We sometimes come to those passages about judgment in the Old Testament, and, and they make us really uncomfortable. Um, 
If you haven't listened to the first sermon in this series, the one that Jeff preached at Southside, go back and listen about what justice means and how judgment and justice can be good news, because I think he unpacks the theology of that really well. So God mentions this messenger that he's bringing. And he talks about him at the end of chapter four as the prophet Elijah, which is slightly confusing because on that um, graph that I showed you earlier, Elijah's right at the start. He's been and gone. So what's God talking about? Well, he mentions this prophet Elijah who is going to turn the hearts of the parents to their children. And if you've read some of the gospels, that should start to ring some bells because that's how it talks about John the Baptist. When the angel's talking to, to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, he says, he'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children to make ready a people prepared for the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Familiar. So actually what God's saying is, I'm going to send John the Baptist and he's going to get people ready and then the Lord will come. So actually this is talking about John the Baptist and Jesus. And what's happening here is that the last words of Malachi, the last words of the Old Testament, prepare the way for Jesus after 400 years of silence into the New Testament. And in that passage that I've just read, God is listening to Israel's complaint that he does nothing about injustice. He does nothing about things that have gone wrong. And he's saying, I am going to act, but it's not just going to be for the people you think are your enemies. It's not just going to be me smashing Babylon and Egypt and all the people who've been harsh to you. I'm going to start with you. He says he's going to start with the Levites, who are his own priests, and he's going to come and purify and cleanse them. I think Israel are going to get more than they bargained for. Often we read in the, the Old Testament this, this um, phrase, the day of the Lord, the day of his coming, the day of judgment. It's all the same thing about this idea of um, the Jews expected a kind of, and I'm going to do it from this way, to left to right, the old age, and then the Messiah would come as king, and then there'd be this new golden age where the Messiah would rule and everything would be wonderful. And so when Jesus turns up, they're a little confused because the Messiah comes and everything isn't rosy and the Romans are still in charge. So the day of the Lord sort of comes in part with Jesus, but not fully. And what God says about, actually, I'm going to come and I'm going to purify and I'm going to cleanse and I'm going to start with you. Eee, have you ever had that happen where you think the problem's actually with somebody else and then God or somebody else goes, yeah, I think you need to deal with something actually. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's that sense of, ah, maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. And God says this, Jesus is coming to purify and to cleanse the hearts of his people so that they can respond in that kind of wholehearted worship. They can offer sacrifices using that language of the covenant that would be acceptable to God. And this is all fulfilled in Jesus's life and death on the cross. I'm going to read some words written by the Bible Project because I think they encapsulate what Jesus was up to really clearly. So Jesus didn't come to defeat the oppressive Roman Empire with weapons of violence. Instead, Jesus came to conquer the underlying issue, the sin of humanity that had been leading them astray since the Tower of Babel. Jesus took on the full power of sin and evil when he died on the cross, allowing evil to fully overcome him, only to defeat its only weapon, death. So there was justice and defeat in that moment, but it wasn't the whole, whole scale renewal of the world that the Jews were expecting. It was like the day of the Lord had kind of been pulled into two and it was partial, but not entire. 
And what Jesus did is he gives us those new, cleansed, purified hearts. He calls us new creations. And so that we can respond to God's love and God's goodness wholeheartedly. It's not just a matter of, okay, I've got to fix the things I'm doing wrong and just try harder. Get a better strategy for success. Because we know New Year's resolutions, that doesn't work. It's not just about willpower, is it? It's about what's going on in here. And that's where Jesus is saying that he's going to work in our hearts. If we go back to an older prophecy in Jeremiah, it describes what was happening. God says, I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor, say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. He's going to create a way for us to know him without having to go through a priest or a mediator or someone in between to make sure everything's right, he's going to forgive us. And those verses I read also talk about a new world that's going to be free from injustice and evil because when we look outside the doors, and to be honest, even when we look at our own lives, we, we don't see the perfect reality of, of Eden and God's new world, do we? It's broken. We're still living in that place where pain and evil and suffering are all coexisting around the stuff that God is obviously doing in his kingdom. And God is making the promise that one day the Messiah Jesus will return to complete that day of the Lord. He is going to free the world and everyone in it from the corruption and the death that sin has brought. And he will recreate the world just as it was meant to be. Good and perfect and beautiful which is the picture we get in Revelation of the new creation. But for now, that neat timeline that the Jews had, it's not really working, is it? It's not old age, Messiah, new age. Actually, the Messiah has come in Jesus, but they're living alongside each other because actually we haven't had the full realization of that new age. The old age is still with us. We're in between. We're living between the times. We're in between people where sometimes you hear now and not yet people. God's kingdom has come, but it's not here yet. Not in full. We're living in the in-between with hope for the future. So Malachi is a book that's written for a very specific time to a particular people in a certain situation. But actually it also speaks to us of really timeless truth. That God yearns for a people who will be faithful, who will be committed to him. And that he's unchanging in his desire for justice and for purity and that he's devoted to us as his people. And it reminds us as we turn the page forwards into Matthew's gospel and it starts with this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. It reminds us that Jesus is coming, that he has come to give us new hearts and to defeat the power of death and that he will come again, that we're living in that in-between time as new creation people who are just waiting for God's creation to be completed perfectly. I think there's lots in there to respond to. I don't know what God is saying to each of you this morning, but he's saying something. 
And it may not be the things that I've got on my list, but what I would like to do now is just spend a bit of time um, pondering that, being a bit still. I'm going to shut up. Um, I'm going to invite the band to come back up because I think sometimes music can help us do that. So what I'd like to do is invite you guys to stand, if you would. I think for some people it is about a call to um, faithful worship, to just evaluate whether faith has become formality. That sense of wholehearted commitment, your life and your heart. And for some people, it is that phrase, return to me or come to me even. It's about realizing the everlasting God and the, the arms of the Father being wide open to receive you. And for some of you, it's about new hearts rather than just trying harder. Letting God renew you and change the inside of you rather than just trying to fix it yourself. And for some, you just really need to hear that this new perfect world is coming. That it's not just a wishful thinking, but it's a sure hope. And you need God to renew your faith in that and in him as well. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. Why not come along and visit us? We gather at three services across two sites on a Sunday and meet during the week in small groups across the city. More information on both of these can be found on our website. Thanks for listening and God bless.